Well, the passage we're going to be preaching from today is from Romans 2. I'll read that aloud, and then we will read together the passage we're memorizing currently from Romans chapter 3. So let me ask if you're able, if you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are working through the epistle to the Romans. Today we come to Romans chapter 2, the end of that chapter, verses 25 through 29. You can follow in your bulletins or follow in your own Bibles. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. For circumcision is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now let me ask you to direct your attention to Romans chapter 3. Again, you can follow on your own Bibles. You can look at the bookmarks we've provided to you. We're going to say these words together from Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Would you read with me? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Amen. Would you please be seated? And would you join me in a word of prayer for the preaching of God's Word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we look at Romans chapter 2, the end of this chapter, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear by your Spirit. We thank you, Lord God, for this beautiful letter that has been written by you through the Apostle Paul for us, your children. And we ask this morning, our Lord and our God, that you would work these things out in our hearts, that we would see our need for you, that we would trust you in faith, that we would glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, we love you, and it's in his name we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, this morning and, and next week as we look at the end of Romans chapter 2 and the beginning of Romans chapter 3, we're actually going to spend some time examining the history of God's people. Examining the history of God's people. And I'll tell you why. If you remember the introduction to this letter, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 verse 7, uh, this is addressed to all those who are loved by God in Rome, the saints in Rome. 
And if you remember us talking about it, this includes both the Gentiles and the Jews. As a matter of fact, we will read this epistle and we will see various parts that are directed towards either the Gentile believers or the Jews. And and in, in both instances, Paul speaks to them regarding the issues, not only that they would stumble over, but that would be particularly of interest to those two groups. And so I would suggest to you this morning that if you don't understand the history of the people of God, you actually will fail to understand large portions of the epistle to the Romans. You will stumble upon, for instance, passages like this that speak about circumcision, and you'll say, I don't know why he's speaking about circumcision, let's just move on to the next chapter. You will hear a phrase like, one is not merely a Jew who is one outwardly, and you will be perplexed by what the apostle is speaking about. So this morning, we're going to talk about the history of God's people. I'm going to put it up here at the top. All right, this is all about the history of God's people. I believe the information we'll discuss will actually equip you to understand the rest of this book as we move through it. Now, if you're taking notes on the insert in your bulletin, I have a simple suggestion. Turn it sideways, okay? We're going to go left to right, and it's going to be very long and extensive this morning as we examine the history of the people of God, all right? And as we get to the end, then, you'll see how this all fits together to help us to understand Paul's words at the end of Romans chapter 2. Now, if I was uh, beginning the story of of the the history of God's people, beginning to explain that story, I would begin, and this is where I'm going to begin this morning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, okay? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the history of the people of God, the story of the people of God begins in the garden, all right? We know that. We see it in Scripture. But it begins in the garden, and in the garden, God makes with his people a covenant, Okay, we're talking about a covenant, a covenant of works. The covenant of works, and if you're wondering, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. God makes an agreement with Adam and Eve in the garden. We call it the covenant of works. Is an agreement not only with Adam and with Eve, but it's an agreement that is for all their posterity. It's an agreement between God and humanity. We call it a covenant of works because it's an agreement that God makes with human beings that essentially is dependent upon their obedience, right? Their works. God says to Adam and Eve in the garden that they really can enjoy anything in the garden. They can participate in, they can partake of, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? In this way, God communicates to them uh, this agreement that he is making with his people And if they obey, there's a promise of life. So let's put life over here. If they obey, there's the promise of life. If they fail to obey, there's the promise of death. Covenant of works in Genesis 1-2 is a very simple covenant. It is clearly expressed. It has very few terms. And the promise of life and death is very simple. He says of the tree of life, if they eat of it, they will live forever. He says of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they eat of it, in that day they will surely die, right? So there's the promises that God gives them contingent upon, let's make this very clear, contingent upon their obedience, okay? So it is received by humanity, this agreement with God, contingent upon their obedience. If they obey, they will have life. If they disobey, it will lead to death, okay? This is what we call the covenant of works in Genesis 1 and 2. An understanding, a basic understanding of the covenant of works is absolutely necessary If you're going to understand what the Apostle Paul is speaking about in Romans, okay, 
These things will be very foreign to you if you don't understand this basic concept. God makes an agreement with man, a covenant of works. Now think about this. All covenants have signs. What are the signs of the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden? It's actually, if you want the most basic signs, it's actually these two trees, okay? So I would draw, if you want to remember, I would draw two trees. Those are my two trees. One is the tree of life. One is the tree of, the, of knowledge of good and evil. These serve as visible pictures of the agreement that God has made with man. One represents disobedience. One represents obedience, okay? This covenant God has made with all humanity. Now listen, we know that very shortly after this, the events that happen in Genesis 3 are what we describe as the fall. And if you, if you are kind of new to Christianity or if you're like, I haven't kind of read the whole story of creation yet, you might have heard us use the words the fall and you might be wondering, what are they talking about, okay? In Genesis 3, the chapter begins and it says, now the serpent was more crafty than all the beasts of the field. And the serpent, who is the enemy of God, comes to Adam and Eve, and he entices them with this very enticing idea, that is, that God really doesn't know what he's talking about, or he doesn't really care about you. You should trust your own intuition, not the revelation of God, okay? Therefore, the serpent entices them to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and as God promised, in that day, they would surely die. And so we must recognize That the covenant of works, because of the fall, requiring obedience, leads after Genesis 3 only unto death. Whereas in Genesis 1 and 2, we might have said, well, this obedience could lead us to life. Disobedience could lead us to death. Once sin enters the world in Genesis 3, all humanity being born under the covenant of works can only, because of the fall, lead to death, can only be condemned to death. This is what the psalmist means when the psalmist says, uh, in iniquity I was brought forth, in sin did my mother conceive me. It's also what the apostle Paul means in in Galatians 4 when he's speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might be received or receive the adoption as sons, okay? Essentially, when the Apostle Paul says Christ came to be born under the law, he's saying that Christ came to be born under the covenant of works, all right? So this is the covenant agreement that God makes with all humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. You must understand that this is an agreement with all humanity from the beginning of creation To the end of the creation, all human beings are born under the covenant of works. This doesn't go away. It's not as if, okay, this is what we started with, but all humanity is under a new covenant. That's not what happens. All humanity born under a covenant of works. That is to say, all human beings who are now born into sin, if they perfectly obey, they will have life. But we know that's impossible. We've been reading about it in Romans. Therefore, all humanity condemned to death. Okay? Following so far? Makes sense? You can nod your head. Good, good. I saw some head nods. That's excellent. What happens then? In Genesis chapter 3, okay, and in verse 15, we can get very specific. God inaugurates a new covenant. It is the covenant of grace. Okay, it's going to be very different than the covenant of works. The covenant of grace with his people, okay, to be uh, administered or received by faith, not by obedience or by works, 
ultimately resulting in life. You might be wondering, well, where does, how does it happen in Genesis 3? Where do we see that? Immediately after the fall, okay, God says to Adam and Eve, listen, here's my promise for you. All these curses are, are being pronounced on the creation, but here's my promise for you, okay? The seed of the serpent will, will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right? We often call that the proto-euangelion, the, the first gospel, the very first seeds of the promise of the coming of the Messiah. This is a visible picture then in Genesis 3. Where's my marker? It's a visible picture. You think of the heel, okay? The heel of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. I'm just going to draw that. That's my best artist rendering of the heel that crushes the, the, the head of the serpent. This is a sign of the covenant of grace. We think about the signs of a covenant. What's a sign of a covenant? A sign is a visible picture of invisible truths, right? So the covenant of grace is initiated. God will save his people. They will receive this by faith. And you might ask a very important question in Genesis 3. Well, how is this possible? If we're all born under a covenant of works, how is it possible that God will be gracious with us? How, how, will we be, how will we have life through faith? What do you mean by this? So God gives a picture. Picture of the seed of the woman, the heel of the seed of the woman crushing the, the seed of the serpent, the head of the serpent. Okay, here's a picture. And at that point, everyone might say, well, what does that mean? I don't understand what that means, but the, the sign will find its fulfillment in the course of time, okay? So there it is. We have a picture of the covenant of grace that God has with his people. Now, as we talk about the passage this morning, I want you to know, at least, there is at least four things that God is working out through the course of history among his people that are essential to understanding the epistle of the Romans. First of all, he's always working to expose the covenant of works. Always working to expose the covenant of works. What do I mean by that? God is always desiring that his people might see that they're born under or unto a covenant of works, but that in that covenant there is no hope for them, okay? So he's always working to show us that. It's present. It was present today in the service, in our confession of sin, right? As we read scripture, as, as we confess together at the beginning from the mouth of Jeremiah, all of this is God working to expose the covenant of works, okay? The covenant that we're born into. Second, he's always working among his people to reveal the covenant of grace. And so as he reveals our hopelessness in the covenant of works, he's always working among his people to show how he saves us by faith, or through faith, by his grace, okay? And so this is always being presented to the people of God, the covenant of grace, the other two things that God is working out in the course of history is the consummation, all right, the consummation of the covenant of grace. That is, okay, how is this actually going to be worked out, right? I understand the promise. I get where you're going, God, but we don't see how this is going to be worked out. He works that out in the course of history, and then finally, he is working always to glorify himself, okay? These are four things we can be certain of in the history of the people of God that are going to be present in the epistle to the Romans that are crucial to our understanding of what God is doing in the story of redemption. Exposing the covenant of works, revealing the covenant of grace, consummating the covenant and glorifying himself. These things are all true. Okay, so now, let's get to the specifics then of the history of the people of God. And then we're going to tie this all together with Romans chapter 2. I know you might be thinking, well, how are we going to tie this all together? We will get there, okay? It's coming. The history of the people of God. As you think about the, the, uh, the people of God, there's a number of ways to look at, well, who are the people of God? 
How do we categorize them? What's kind of their function throughout all of history? I want to begin with three characters, okay? From Genesis 1 to 10, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, okay? These are some of the early representatives of the people of God. They are the people of God. We know that for a variety of reasons. We read about their lives in the Old Testament Scriptures, specifically in Genesis. We hear about who they are in relationship to the living God. We recognize a number of characteristics that in, in their lives in Genesis, we see demonstrations of their faith in the Lord God. Therefore, we see them as being under the covenant of grace, not under the covenant of works, but being moved to the covenant of grace, having received those things by faith. And we have that very helpful passage in Hebrews chapter 11, don't we? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the, the whole history of the people of God. Right? And some people call that the hall of fame or the hall of faith or you know, whatever you want to call it. I call Hebrews 11 the history of the people of God. These are the true people of God. Abel, Enoch, and Noah from Genesis 1 to 10 are representatives of the people of God. As a matter of fact, this is what Hebrews says about these three people. It says that they believed by faith and they became heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay? They believed by faith, and they became heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. A little bit of shorthand, what the writer of Hebrews is saying. They believed by faith. That's the mode that this covenant is received. They believed by faith, and they became heirs of the righteousness that is received by faith. They, they became recipients of life. They received life through the faith that God gave them under the covenant of grace. Okay? So at least Abel, Enoch, and Noah were born under the covenant of works, but by the work of the Spirit, they were moved to the covenant of grace, having received it by faith, and they became the people of God. Now you might be thinking, well, why is he emphasizing these are the people of God? This is very important for the conversation that's going to happen through the epistle to the Romans. These are the people of God. Abel, Enoch. And Noah, these are God's people. Now, where does the, the history of God's people go from Abel, Enoch, and Noah? It goes to Abraham and Sarah. Okay, Abraham and Sarah. So you could jot their names down. Abraham and Sarah. These are the next people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And Sarah is the first woman who's mentioned on this list. And I, I love Sarah's presence on the list because you remember what happens in Genesis, as Sarah, as God is speaking to Abraham and to Sarah specifically, uh, Genesis says this about Sarah. It says that this is her demonstration of faith, that she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him faithful who had promised. You want a beautiful, simple expression of what faith looks like? She considered him faithful who had promised. God promised to her and she said, all right, he's going to do it. I believe it. That's what faith is. That's a beautiful expression of the faith that Sarah had, okay? And so Abraham and Sarah are our next representatives of the people of God, born under the covenant of works, transferred to a covenant of grace, becoming his people, having received these things by faith, and receiving the inheritance of eternal life, presence with God, okay? Now, if you think about them just for a second, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, if you think about their lives, we could, do, we could do this exercise all day. You will see in each of their lives how God worked to expose the covenant of works, how he revealed to them the covenant of grace, and then how he gave them the gift of faith, right? You think about Abraham, the story of Abraham. 
from Sodom and Gomorrah to his interactions with Lot to everything that happens is, as he's going about with Sarah, all of this is exposing the covenant of works. Obedience, you, you can't obey. You're condemned to death, right? Again and again, those pictures are being represented. And then as God reveals his covenant to Abraham, we see the, the gracious nature of the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a revelation of the covenant of grace. So in many ways, the, the beautiful promises that God makes to Abraham are these iterations of the covenant of grace, right? He's going to make him a father of, of many nations, of, uh, and he will have this great inheritance, and they will be a blessing to the whole earth. I mean, all of this is an expression of the, the covenant of grace that God has made with his people that is received by faith, and it's beautiful, okay? You think about Noah. A Noah, is the, the covenant of works is revealed to Noah as Noah sees the sinfulness of man, right? And God says, I will destroy man from off the face of the earth. There it is. Well, they, in a, they're not obeying him. They're under a, an obligation of a covenant of works. Therefore, it leads unto death. And that is very visible to Noah. But then God says, and I'm going to reveal also my covenant of grace to you. And I, w- I will save you and your family. Right? And you have believed me by faith. And therefore, that will result in life. The flood is a beautiful picture of that very thing. Okay? So we see God at work to show his covenant of works, and then to reveal the covenant of grace to his people. And very importantly, along the line, he keeps giving us new, new signs, new pictures of the covenant, okay? So we just talked about the, the ark, the ark, that's my boat. The ark becomes a picture of the covenant. Uh, there's many other pictures, but the one that's prominent for today, I'm just going to draw a knife here. That is, a, that is the sign of the covenant of circumcision, okay? The sign of circumcision, not going to try and draw any other pictures other than the knife, okay, uh, is the sign of circumcision, all right? And, and God gives it to Abraham, and he gives it to Abraham as a sign of the covenant of grace. And in each of these signs, if you think about circumcision, if you think about the ark, in each of these signs, he's doing both things, exposing the, the hopelessness of the, under the covenant of works and revealing the covenant of grace to his people. There's a, right, we talk about those signs just like baptism. There's both a blessing and a curse associated with those pictures. Okay? And baptism is a sign that is coming. It will be added to these pictures of signs. Where does the history of Israel go after Abraham and Sarah? It goes to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay? Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They're also the next ones who are mentioned in that list. It's very interesting. You look at the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Each of them, you, you try to examine where do we see faith in their lives one of the very prominent, primary ways we see this is in how they handle their children, okay? Um, the writer of Hebrews says that it manifests in how uh, Isaac blessed Jacob, okay, in the ways that he blessed Jacob. We see in how Abraham handled Isaac, right, when he goes up to give him to the Lord on the mountain, demonstration of faith, okay? Each of them demonstrates their faith, and we see that they were born into the covenant of works, but they're transferred to a covenant of grace, receiving these things by faith leading to everlasting life. Now, it's very important. Something happens in the life of Jacob that's going to influence what we're reading in Romans, okay? So you remember this. In Jacob's life, in Genesis chapter 32, there's a story, and I imagine if you're like me, most of you read the story, you're like, what in the world just happened? It's a, it seems like a nonsensical story. You put it up there with the like top five weird stories in Genesis, okay? Jacob is there, it says, with his two wives, okay? Jacob goes to sleep, and an angel comes to him, and they wrestle the whole night. You get the picture that it begins almost when the sun goes down, 
and we know for sure that it goes until the sun rises, right? And the angel says, let me go. I got to get out of here. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you've blessed me, okay? And then the angel says, well, your, your name was Jacob, but now you will be called Israel, okay? That's an important word for Romans, okay, Israel. I want to say two things. First of all, I think we misunderstand the story because I think we misunderstand the name that Jacob is given by the angel, okay? The name Israel, the next verse says, you will be Israel, for you have wrestled with God. It's the same Hebrew word that's used there. Two Hebrew words are combined by God to give Jacob a new name. El, which we know is God, Shara. Okay, so Shara'el, Israel, is really the combination of those two words. And we have often said, well, Shara means to wrestle with God. Technically, not really what it means, okay? The most basic understanding of the Hebrew word is, is to mean the one who persists, the one who goes for a long time, the one who continues on. Now, you can see how to wrestle is definitely a, another part of that definition. You can see how those two words are very, very similar. I would suggest to you this morning that if you want to better understand that story, that the emphasis is not so much on the wrestling, though that's part of it. The emphasis is on the time, okay, that it begins at the beginning of the night and that it goes all the way till the morning. So we get this really weird picture of Jacob wrestling with an angel, and we say, wow, he wrestled with him all night. wonder what it's like to wrestle with an angel all night, like 12 hours, okay? I don't even know. I don't even know what that would be like. But I do know that that emphasis of the length of time period that Jacob wrestles is important for our understanding of the name that God now gives him, because I think better understood Israel is the name that means he who persists with God, okay? He who persists with God. And you might be saying, well, the next verse says it is because you've wrestled with God, but it's the same Hebrew word that means to persist, to go on for a long time, to continue on or to wrestle, okay? So then here's what I want you to see as we, we go through this. What I, what I want you to see is that the people of God have always been, we call them Israel. We'll talk in a second about the name Jew, Okay, because it comes up in the passage. They have always been the people who persist with God. Okay, the people who continue on with God. The people of God, the children of God, beloved of God, whatever we call them. Okay, and so here they are given a new name. Israel, the people who persist with God. I want to talk about this in a second, but I just, I'll mention one other figure in this line. We'll pick up next week with the history of Israel, but there's Moses. Moses is the next the next person who's mentioned, and interestingly enough, Moses gives us a new sign. Here it is. It's the Ten, Ten Commandments. It's the whole law, actually. Moses gives a new sign, and for as much misunderstanding as there is concerning the law, if you just think about this, the law makes perfect sense. The law, better than anything else in all the Old Testament, I think, exposes the covenant of works, doesn't it? Okay? We've been talking about this, but by reading the law, you really see, wow, okay, if if by obedience is my only hope for life, I'm helpless, okay? The law shows the covenant of works, and it leads us to the covenant of grace. It's a new sign of the covenant given through Moses, meant to be used by God for that very purpose, to lead us to the covenant of grace, okay? To draw in the people of God uh, uh, to his saving work under that covenant. As I said, we'll come back to this next week, the history of Israel, but Again, why are we talking about it this morning? Here's why. 
what happens in the course of time for the people of Israel, but it happens to the Christian church as well, and we'll talk about what that means, but what happens in the course of time is that people who are the people of God, who receive by faith, and through the grace of God, they receive life after so much time passes and so many generations pass, they begin to misunderstand the covenant, don't they? Okay? They have all these signs, and they have all these things that are being, being used to demonstrate the power of the covenant of grace, and they begin to think that those are the things that give them life. So I'll give you a few examples. God's people. They say, okay, we're Israel. They forget that this is the people who persist with God. They think it is simply being born of Abraham, and they say, well, that's the thing that gives us life. There it is. We're the, we're the children of God. We're the bloodline of Abraham. Or they begin to look down here at some of the signs. Okay, they say, sign of circumcision. What a great sign. Generation after generation administers the sign, and before you know it, one generation to the next, they begin to say, well, that sign of circumcision is so great. That saves us. That's the thing that gives us life. We've got to make sure we circumcise our children. Okay? And it, and it becomes so important. And, you're, and if you're wondering, well, well, okay, here's the third one, right? The law. We talked about the law last week. The law. The sign God gave to show us that we can't survive the covenant of works, to lead us to a covenant of grace, that sign, we think, man, that thing really justifies us. We just live by that law. We will get life. Okay? And if you're sitting here thinking, well, how strange is that? Why in the world would anybody ever think that circumcision saves them? Let me just tell you something. You go back through the history of the Christian church, okay? The waters of baptism are the new sign. That's my, my water drop, okay? The waters of baptism are the new sign, and I can give you a dozen different examples of Christian churches who have taken the sign of baptism, and they have said, well, that's the thing that saves us. Let's make sure we baptize all the kids, okay? Because if we don't baptize the kids, they're not going to be saved. We've got to do that quick. Eight days of life, get them baptized. Woo, good. They are saved, Okay? And baptism becomes the functional means of salvation. The thing that was meant to signify the covenant of grace now becomes the very thing that saves. And if you want examples of this, let me just read you a few quotes. The second temple period from a few different rabbis. Okay, Rabbi Merachem, in his commentary on the book of Moses that was given to all Israel, says this, our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. Jakut Rabbanai, in his commentary on Numbers chapter 1, circumcision saves from hell. In the Medrash Tillam, the rabbi there says, God swore to Abraham that no one who is circumcised should be sent to hell. Obviously, you can see the problems with that. My question, especially for the last rabbi, is where in the world has God sworn that no one who is circumcised will be sent to hell? That's a misunderstanding. It cannot be found in the Word of God, okay? That brings us to our passage this morning. In verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcised. You hear what he's saying? If you think that circumcision, which is a work, it is an act of obedience, if you think that thing saves you, Okay, here's what you got to do. Find yourself in the covenant of works. See if your perfect obedience is good enough. And if it is, great, circumcision saves you. Yeah, you can take it. You can have it. If you can obey perfectly, take the sign of circumcision. It will be great for you. It will be perfect. It will indeed save you if you can perfectly obey the law. But if you cannot, 
then no, no act of obedience, no work that you can do, nothing that you can administer to your children, no sign, nothing, not the law, not any of this, none of that can save you. But go ahead and try it. Okay, that's what he says in verse 25. And in verse 26, he says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And you see what he's saying, okay? These, these are signs, they're signifiers. They're not the real thing, they're signifiers, okay? So if a man who is not circumcised keeps all of the law, won't he be actually circumcised, okay? And the answer is yes, but we're talking about a theoretical man. Paul goes between theoretical and real and theoretical and real because there is no one who can live under the covenant of works in perfect obedience. But if there was, and he was a Gentile, and he was uncircumcised, then his uncircumcision would be circumcision. Because it's a sign. It's not the thing that saves you. Now listen to what he says in verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. I want to tell you, if you're keeping a list of things that would really have ticked off the Jews who heard this letter, that's the top five. That's in the top five, okay? Because it's a very common Jewish understanding that those who were circumcised in eternity would stand in judgment over those who were uncircumcised, right? They would be there with God and they'd be like, ha, 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 look at you uncircumcised fools. Now we condemn you with God. And here the Apostle Paul said, no, 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 you got it all backwards, okay? The one who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will stand in judgment over you. He will condemn you, right? And that was the worst possible thing to the Jewish ear at this moment, okay? For those who had not fully understood the covenant of grace, there was no world in which they could possibly understand what the apostle was saying at this moment. God had to give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Now look at what he says in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Listen, what I've been trying to stress the whole morning, I'm going to stress here as we wrap up. The reality of verses 28 and 29 is you will not understand them unless first you understand this. God's people are these people who have been justified by faith under the covenant of grace and have received life. They are Israel. And you might be wondering, what is that, that word Jew? What does that mean? We haven't talked about that yet. Okay, Jew. Jew comes later after Moses. It is derived from the tribe of Judah. It's really just the beginning of that. It's the Judah, okay? And what does Judah mean? Judah means the one who praises God, okay? So I would tell you this morning, as we talk about the people of God and those who are loved by God and the children of God and those who persist with God, we have here the same category. The Jew is the one who praises God. It's the original name as it was given, the one who praises God. And what the Apostle Paul is meaning this morning is if you take these names, these titles for the, the people of God, if you take them and you interchange them into verse 28, you will find that the passage makes a whole lot more sense. Listen to this. Verse 28, for no one is a persister with God or a praiser of God, or a child of God, or a person of God who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a praiser of God, a persister with God, a child of God is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart 
by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, that's the child of God, the persister with God, the praiser of God. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, the Apostle Paul is speaking about something that has always been true, but has almost always been misunderstood. He is clarifying for those who would hear this letter, and he's preparing them for the argument that he's building in chapter 7 and later in chapter 9 and chapter 11 as he speaks about Israel. He's building to the argument that he's making now that the people of God are not the people because of their bloodline or because they're Abraham's seed or because they're part of a certain church or they're because they're part of a certain state or a certain ethnicity or a certain skin color that has nothing to do with their genetic DNA, but rather it has everything to do with their faith in God. That's the people of God. That's why he will move on in Galatians to say, you are the true Israel of God. You're the true Israel of God. So listen, here's my takeaway this morning, and it it, it leads us into the passage next week. My uh, My takeaway this morning for you is very simple. You are the true Israel of God. You're the, you're the true Jew. You're the true people of God. You, you, you are the true children of God. You are the true Israel of God, the persisters with God, the, the praisers with God. But, but hear this, okay? This is so important. You're not the true Israel of God because of anything you've done. The reality, the reality of the matter is this. There's only one who is the true Israel of God. Let's, let's put the cross down here, okay? Importantly, in the, in, the, in, in the history of, God, of the history of redemption, as God's working this out, not only is he exposing the covenant of works and revealing the covenant of grace, but he is co- consummating the covenant of grace. He does that ultimately through his son. And remember, he sends his son to be born of a woman to be under the covenant of works. Okay? This, this agreement that began in Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus Christ comes under that agreement and in perfect obedience to God the Father, he meets all the requirement of the covenant of works and he who should have received life only receives death because our sin was imputed to him on the cross and his righteousness was imputed to us that we might receive life and he would receive death. And if you ask back in Genesis 3, well, how is this covenant of grace even possible? Here it is. It has been consummated in Jesus Christ. And through the life of another, the covenant of works is satisfied. And his righteousness is what makes possible the covenant of grace that we could receive by faith and have everlasting life. The reality of the true Israel of God is that there's only one person who is ever the true Israel of God. That's Jesus Christ. He's the one who persisted with the Father. He's the one who praised the Father. He is the true child of God, the true son of God, the one who did all that Abraham was designed to do, all that humanity has been commanded to do. That is Jesus Christ. And the reality of the matter is that we are true Israel. Again, not because of anything that we have done, but because the word of God says we have been joined together with Christ Jesus. That by our union with him, through his, his life and death on the cross, through satisfying the demands of the law and the covenant of works, by our union with him, we have become the people of God. That all of the promises from the beginning and the garden And all the promises to all the people of God throughout the history of the people of God, all those promises are now for us. And that God has saved us through his son that we might be redeemed as a people to glorify his holy name. Listen, all I want you to know is as we go through this book, that's important to understand. 
the Apostle Paul is moving there very methodically, step by step. And if we understand this, we begin to have the keys to understanding the whole epistle to the Romans. The stress that Paul will make on the whole history of redemption and the predestination and the affection of God and the sovereignty of the Father and the satisfaction for sin, and the sending of the Son, and the adoption as sons and daughters, and the glorification of His children, and a making for Himself a people, and a breaking off of the branch of Israel, and a grafting in of a new branch. All of that is seen through the lens of this, the history of God's people. And the end result, at the end of the epistle to the Romans, is the same result this morning, that Jesus Christ is the one who saves and gives glory to the Father. So the result for us this morning is that we would glorify the Father, knowing that not through obedience and works have we been saved, but by faith through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. You are a gracious God. We thank you that you did not simply leave us with this agreement in the garden. You were just and right and good and perfect in requiring obedience of us, for we are your creation. We are made to bear your image, but we thank you that you have not left us to that covenant. We thank you that as we've fallen into sin and now we have been born into sin, been born into iniquity. That as we have fallen into sin, that you, Lord God, had a plan to redeem a people for yourself, to do this through your Son, Jesus Christ, to offer it to us freely, not to be received by obedience and works, not to be received by perfection in the law or the administration of a sign like circumcision or baptism. Not to be received by any of that, but to be received by faith. And this is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So we ask, Father, that as you have gathered us together now here, as you have drawn us to yourself and you have given us the gift of faith, we ask, dear Father, that by this faith we would glorify you. That as we come in faith and as your spirit works, our hearts would be moved And that through Jesus Christ, who we now have union with, that through Jesus Christ, you, Lord God, would be glorified. And that through Jesus Christ, you would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that you would be honored and glorified for all that Christ has done on our behalf. We ask, dear Father, that you would never let us forget this grace, that you would strengthen this gift of faith, And we ask, dear Father, that you would glorify yourself through us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.